This is the Green Street News, the environmental health show and podcast. Patty and Doug Wood and our worldwide network of experts with your weekly update on what in the world is happening and how you can protect yourself and your family in an increasingly toxic world. On today's show, we're going to hear about our food supply and whether what you ate for breakfast or lunch may contain things that are known to be harmful to your health, but which are in our food supply because there's little or no testing or regulation of those things. So before you open that can or bottle or package or call in your takeout order, there are some things you really should know. That story and Patty with the Week's headlines all coming up on this edition of Green Street News. Stay with us. All right, Patty, so what happened in the world of environmental health this week? Well, let's just talk about climate change first. So this year's COP28, which is Conference of the Parties, which is an international group that gets together every year to talk about climate change. They are now clashing over fossil fuel phase-out after OPEC pushback. This is a Reuters news story. After OPEC pushes back. The oil and gas industry. That's correct pushback. See, there's a surprise. Yeah, this is a Reuters story. Countries clashed on Saturday over a possible agreement to phase out fossil fuels at the COP28 summit in Dubai, jeopardizing attempts to deliver a first-ever commitment to eventually end the use of oil and gas in 30 years of global warming talks. They're going to have to do this sometime or other. You know, sooner or later, you got to face the music and say, no more fossil That's fuels. That's it. That's it. Why not now? Why not COP28? But... Saudi Arabia and Russia were among several countries insisting that the conference in Dubai focus only on reducing climate pollution and not on targeting the fossil fuels causing it, according to observers in the negotiations. Wow. Wow is right. Saudi Arabia and Russia were among several countries insisting that the conference in Dubai focus only on reducing climate pollution and not on targeting the fossil fuels causing it, according to observers in the negotiations. On the other side, at least 80 countries, including the United States, which is good, the European Union and many poor climate vulnerable nations are demanding that a COP28 deal call clearly for an eventual end to fossil fuel use. Earlier this week, OPEC sent a letter urging its members and allies to reject any mention of fossil fuels in the final summit deal, warning that, quote, undue and disproportionate pressure against fossil fuels may reach a tipping point. The EU climate commissioner criticized the letter as, quote, out of whack, unquote, with climate efforts. Mm. (laughs) You think? Yeah. Yeah. Saudi Arabia is the top producer in OPEC and the de facto leader of the organization, and Russia is a member of the so-called OPEC Plus group. By insisting on focusing on emissions rather than fossil fuels, the two countries appear to be leaning on the promise of expensive carbon capture technology, which the UN Climate Science Panel says cannot take the place of reducing fossil fuel use worldwide. Yeah, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And it creates more, you know, more pollution. So it would be interesting to talk to somebody post-COP28 who was actually there in attendance. So we'll try to get that person on the show. I found it remarkable that COP28 was chaired by the chairman of an oil and gas company. I mean, you would think Why are you surprised? Well, I mean, you would think that they could find at least somebody who had the appearance of being neutral rather than somebody who's actually working for a company that stands to lose money if they they come out with a deadline for phasing out oil and gas. Right. 
But apparently nobody was available, so they picked this guy. Apparently nobody was available. That's a <laughs> ridiculous know. thing to say. Well, you know, I would have done it. Okay. What else you got? Okay, so then here's one, ABC News, written by Evan Simon, and the title is Plastic Recycling Directory Ends, Citing Lack of Real Commitment from the Industry. After 20 years of operation, a national online recycling directory for plastic bags and plastic films has been taken offline six months after an ABC News investigation. The directory, once found at bagandfilmrecycling.org, previously directed the public to more than 18,000 store drop-off locations around the country where they could bring used plastic bags and film to be recycled. Visitors to the site today are greeted with a message informing them that, quote, the resource is no longer available, end quote. So this was a place where you could go to find out what to do with your plastic bags. Well, yeah, you remember these these little containers at grocery stores. Collection boxes. Yeah, little collection boxes where you could actually stuff your plastic bags in there and really feel like you had done something good for the planet, right? You're getting out, rid of it. Turned, turned out, turned out that it was a hoax. Okay, oh but boy. let's let me go on. Initially funded by the American Chemistry Council as part of their RAP Recycling Action Program, or RAP, the directory included many of the nation's biggest retailers and was promoted by the Environmental Protection Agency, as well as linked to by local and state governments across the country as a viable means to recycle your plastic bags and plastic film. Oops. In May, an ABC News investigation using digital tracking devices revealed that plastic bags dropped off at many Walmart and Target stores listed on the directory were instead being sent to landfills, incinerators, and other waste facilities that play no role in recycling plastic bags film. Are you kidding? Now, they put trackers on the plastic bags to yep. see where they went. Yep. And they ended up in landfills instead That's of right. being recycled. That's right. Well, there you go. One hoax down and more hoaxes to go probably. Right. Okay. okay. So Washington State has proposed a ban on forever chemicals or PFAS in clothes. And this is written in the Washington Times. The Washington State Department of Ecology has proposed bans and new reporting requirements for toxic chemicals used to repel water, heat, and fuel in some clothing, firefighting gear, and cleaning products. In a draft report to the state legislature, the agency identified safer alternatives for some uses of per and polyfluoroalkyl substances, or PFAS, also known as forever chemicals, for their pervasiveness. It recommended restricting, or in some cases effectively banning, the use of the chemicals in clothing and cleaning products, as well as car, boat, and truck washes where safer alternatives are available. The state also proposed requiring manufacturers to report the use of PFAS in personal protective equipment for firefighters, floor and ski waxes, shoes, gear, sealants, and cookware. The chemicals have been linked to increased risks of some cancers, birth and developmental defects, and other health disorders in humans. In the environment, PFAS have been found in the tissue of fish that live in Lake Washington and may accumulate in apex predators like orcas. A recent review cited in the draft report found concentrations of PFAS in rainwater were often higher than environmental and public health limits. Mm. The chemicals have been turning up in drinking water sources near airports and military bases where crews were required to use and train with toxic firefighting foams for decades. As new statewide drinking water testing requirements roll out, the chemicals have contaminated now over 200 public water sources so far. That's a small amount of testing so far. Mm -hmm. But under the Safer Products for Washington Act, signed into law in 2019, the agency is working to eliminate toxins where safer alternatives are available. Last year, lawmakers required 
the Department of Ecology to make an initial set of proposals on some products containing PFAS by June of 2024 and adopt rules by December of 2025. The state this year adopted rules to restrict the use of PFAS in carpets, rugs, leather, and textile furnishings, as well as stain and water-resistant treatments. PFAS can be used as a surface treatment, membrane treatment, or a layer that's woven within the fabric of clothing that blocks water or other substances from passing through. The chemicals have been found in raincoats, activewear like hiking pants, sports bras, and yoga pants. People are exposed to the chemicals in clothing, through inhalation, and skin contact. As the clothing ages and the chemicals in the surface treatment break down, the chemicals may become airborne. High levels of airborne PFAS are found in outdoor clothing shops, according to a study cited in the report. And when people throw stain or water-resistant clothes containing PFAS in their washing machine, those chemicals are then discharged into the wastewater. Yes. High levels in stores. Yes. So when you go to a, like a Dick's Sporting Goods store or oh, some yeah. other EMS or, you know, some other outdoor clothing store, it's full of PFAS chemicals in the air. That's right. Wow. Wow is right. That's not good. No. Okay, more PFAS. There's, I mean, if we wanted to, we could talk about PFAS every single week because think, it is in the do. news Literally every single day. Yeah. Every day it is such a pervasive class of chemicals. And they're just in everything and they are forever. They don't go away. They build up in the environment, but they also build up in your bodies. And we do not have good data telling us what these chemicals are actually doing to our bodies and especially to our children's bodies. Yeah. Really, All right. really scary stuff. The PFOS, the whole PFOS dilemma. All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Do you know what's in the food you eat? Really, seriously, when you open that jar or package or you get your takeout delivery from DoorDash or Uber, do you know what you're eating? Sure, we have food safety regulations based primarily on whether or not there are microbes in the food that could cause some kind of immediate illness. But what about those things that may not show up that night or the next morning but can be even more hazardous to your health? things that can cause cancer or infertility or heart disease. Well, you think, surely the government is regulating those things too. We can't have a national food supply that contains things that are proven beyond any reasonable doubt to be harmful. Well, if you think that, then you might want to listen carefully to our show today. Food is big business in America, very big business. From the giant agribusinesses that grow and process our fruits and vegetables, to the chemical engineers who synthesize chemical compounds into things we eat, to the transportation system that brings those things to the market, and the legions of people employed in grocery and convenience stores, food is an economic powerhouse. According to the USDA, agriculture, food, and related industries are a trillion dollar business. So, with a trillion dollars on the line, you can be sure that any kind of proposed government regulation is watched very carefully and moved very slowly, if at all. In the meantime, consumers are left to fend for themselves when it comes to feeding their families healthy, nutritious food that doesn't contain harmful ingredients. Fortunately, there are people who have taken up this challenge and are ready to help educated consumers make the right choices. And one of those people is our guest today on Green Street News. 
I'm a food safety and quality systems engineer, which I tell people makes me a professional buzzkill at dinner parties. So if you want to be talked out of literally drinking or eating anything, I'm your girl. I know where the bodies are buried. That's Jackie Bowen, executive director of the Clean Label Project, a national nonprofit with a mission to bring truth and transparency to food and consumer product labeling. When it comes to food safety in America, so much of the attention has been focused on microbial and pathogen contaminants, things that can contribute to vomiting, diarrhea, worse within 24 to 72 hours. But my concern and kind of Clean Label Project's concern is You know, what we see is there's an increase in consumer awareness and attention about the food you eat, the consumer products they use, and how it's linked to long-term chronic disease, things like cancer and infertility, that even the absence of federal regulation, there are things you can do now in order to minimize your exposure. And this is, you know, especially important for me as both a public health practitioner, executive director of Clean Able Project, as well as the parent of a two-year-old. A few weeks ago in our news segment, we read a story about the contamination of the cinnamon supply with lead and how that was impacting baby food containing cinnamon. Consumers were wondering how lead got into the cinnamon supply in the first place. The reality is that a lot of that narrative around baby food safety these days is around heavy metals. A few years ago, you had a congressional investigation into levels of heavy metals in baby food. You have um, different types of consumer advocacy, exposés around levels of heavy metals in, in baby foods, infant formulas, those types of things. The reality is that when you're talking about contaminants, they're never found, they're not ingredients. You would never find them on a product label. But when it comes to things like heavy metals, When you think about things like arsenic, cadmium, lead, and mercury, they're actually present, naturally occurring in the Earth's crust. They're right up there on the periodic table of elements next to oxygen and hydrogen, you know, the building blocks of everything. However, because of human causes like mining, fracking, industrial agriculture, the use of wastewater for irrigation, in the form of pollution ends up in the air, the water, and the soil, and then you get these pollution hotspots. In the absence of federal regulation requiring brands to think about this element of food safety, they get missed. And pollution knows no boundaries. So even when food companies have quality control departments to ensure their products are free from pathogens or insect parts, they can still miss the bigger picture of what kinds of toxins might be in their supply chain. And the government hasn't yet established regulations for manufacturers to test for those things. You know, unbeknownst to brands, because they're not testing for it, it's not part of their traditional food safety plan, not part of their hazard analysis and critical control point as part of their good manufacturing practices. These things are missed. They're not paid attention to. And because of that, inadvertently, they end up in the manufacturing line and ending up in finished products, which is especially relevant when you're talking about vulnerable populations. And the thing is, when it comes to things like heavy metals, arsenic, cadmium, lead, and mercury, it's not like the jury is still out. It's very clear that these are the ramifications of lead exposure on the developing brain. There's Many studies have shown that this is the actual public health ramifications, especially when you're talking about kiddos. The difference is it has not yet made its way into public policy, but it doesn't mean that brands can't proactively do things in order to minimize their, you know, their exposure. They can think about the way they source ingredients differently. They can do proactive testing to figure out who's got the good stuff, who's got the bad stuff, and purchase their ingredients accordingly. What's interesting in the U.S. is over the past several years, there has been, which kind of helps a little bit restore my faith in humanity, is that there is some attention 
finally taking place at the federal level. We've got different activities called like the Baby Food Safety Act of 2021. You have other standards from the FDA, like closer to zero program. And most recently in the state of California, you have a law that's called AB 899 that requires mandatory heavy metal testing effective January 1, 2024 for baby foods and mandatory heavy metal disclosure beginning January 1, 2025. And at the end of the day, all of these things are great for consumers, but here's the reality. My son is currently two years old and the Closer to Zero program is something like a seven-year commitment. So by the time he's in third grade, I'll know what baby food I should have fed him. There's not a lot of controversy here when it comes to things like lead contamination. The World Health Organization, the Centers for Disease Control, practically every organized health organization in the world advises that the acceptable lead exposure level is zero. Nothing. But, says Jackie Bowen, government regulation around food ingredients may be missing the bigger picture. The thing that's interesting to me is you have this kind of evolution of regulatory thought. We're beginning to have this closer to zero program, you know, FDA Baby Food Safety Act. You've got AB 899. Here's the problem. We're putting in place, federal policy is putting in place, here's maximum tolerance levels for levels of lead, cadmium, arsenic, and mercury. But here's the thing is, not only are we putting the literal marketing cart before the science horse. The thing is like high quality, compliant, finished, nutritious baby foods come from high quality and nutritious ingredients. High quality, nutritious ingredients come from high quality, nutritious and healthy soils. Healthy soils come from good environmental policy. But what I see is federal action at the end point. But it's like, no, we've got these three upstream variables that I hear little to nothing about, that these are the predictors of finished product quality. Food toxicology seems like an oxymoron. Food, especially the food we give to our very youngest babies, is supposed to be nutritious, designed to nourish their growing bodies and supply what they need to develop the way they should. Food, especially baby food, shouldn't be toxic. I can tell you right now how you manufacture a baby food that has zero heavy metals. What you do is you take sugar for calories, you take deionized water, and then you take synthetic ingredients and you combine it together and you give it to baby. And guess what? There'll be no heavy metals. Are we saying that we want to reduce nutritional density? Are we saying we want to contribute to childhood obesity for the sake of heavy metals? It shouldn't be a novel concept to have a nutritious baby food that is also low in heavy metals, pesticide residues. The thing is that we have to voluntarily start thinking about this new frontier of food safety, which what I call is food toxicology. The food safety in America is largely focused on these biological and pathogen contaminants. But it's one where it's like, what we know is that consumers are increasingly concerned about the food they eat, the consumer products they use, how it's linked to long-term chronic disease, things like cancer and infertility. When I talk to like my friends about it, and we always get a good laugh, I'll say things like, oh my God, I should not have eaten that macaroni salad at yesterday afternoon's potluck. Mm, I think I woke up with infertility, said nobody ever, right? But that's how we think about food safety in America. Did it? Did I have an adverse effect? Did I have an outside stomach? Did I have to call into work the next day? But yet when it comes to these heavy metals, you know, it's low level exposure over years, even decades that finally manifest themselves in chronic disease later in life. We need to think about long-term environmental health as well as public health and safety. And that's where, from my perspective, federal policy is currently fundamentally flawed and short-sighted.
Of course, even if we cleaned up our entire food supply and got rid of every possible contaminant, our job wouldn't be over. The plastic packaging so much of our food is delivered in contains a whole new array of chemicals that can be even more toxic than those found in the food. It's what Jackie Bowen calls packaging migration. It's really interesting to me because you see a fair amount of these BPA-free claims, which don't get me wrong, and that's that's great, but here's the problem with BPA-free claims. It isn't a federally defined term, a case in point. The thing is, it's like, when you see the word free from, what does that mean? Like, does it mean absolute zero? Does it mean I didn't intentionally formulate it with it, but listen, I don't know what my suppliers did. When it says BPA-free, if you put your scientist hat on, does it mean we tested down to this sensitivity and this methodology? What does that mean? And so it's interesting because when it comes to plastics, you know, parents have a very real reason to be concerned because it's the packaging migration issue. Especially it's like, you've got the issue of plastics first, and then you've got the whole environmental risk associated with that. But then you also have is when, especially when products are low hot. And so what that means is it's like when it comes off the manufacturing line, you know, foods are going to be cooked. When you think about kind of traditional food safety, use things like heat, pasteurization, high pressure, things in order to kill off those microbiological and pathogen contaminants we're talking about. Because of that, when the things are like, whether it's the apple puree or it's the butternut squash, that product is still hot and warm because it's been cooked. And so when it's loaded into something plastic, that's when you have the potential for pathogens packaging migration to happen. It's one where anything that's on the surface area of that plastic container, especially if it's BPA lined, that migration can take place. It's the same concept of why you hear that don't put plastic containers into the microwave because it's that same concept. It gets hot on the inside of what's inside and that plastic basically starts to lose its structural integrity and you get some of that surface area that has the potential at very nothing that you can see, but kind of seep into that product that is then consumed. I mean, it's one where I remember hearing a statistic that it's something like on every in any given week, the average American consumes enough plastic that's equivalent to a credit card. Crazy, it's mind blowing. And it's one where it's like, could this be packaging migration issue? Yeah, but it's also this concept that I'm still getting my head around around these emergence of microplastics that because of things like it's ending up in landfill, ending up in oceans and things like that, you get these very small you know, particulates of of plastics that then end up infiltrating everything, even found on, you know, on top of Mount Everest. So we have toxins in the food supply and we have toxins in the packaging that the food comes in. One thing that worries toxicologists around the world is the synergistic interaction of chemicals when they're combined in unexpected ways and react to each other. We tend to regulate chemicals one at a time, and there is no federal agency charged with looking at the synergistic effects of chemical combinations. You know, if it's like if we only had plastics to worry about, that would be one thing. But it's plastics and antibiotics and residual solvents and heavy metals and pesticide residues. And then the question is, what's the overall cumulative impact on the gut microbiome? What's happening altogether? And those are studies that have not been conducted. What we see is we look at elements in kind of single focus, but not all together and what exactly it's doing to our bodies, especially the bodies of kind of vulnerable populations. Everybody has to eat. Three times a day, we open our mouths and ingest some material that we hope and expect will provide the fuel we need to sustain us without causing any long-term damage. But given the lack of overall regulation of potentially harmful substances in our food supply, what are consumers supposed to do? I had my son later in life, you know, during COVID, and it was one where, you know, even though from a federal perspective, I see things like Baby Food Safety Act or 
you know, closer to zero, even AB899. But what's so interesting to me is that they call quote unquote baby food. And it's like, well, baby food that's defined as like, for example, in, in closer to zero and uh baby food safety act, it's looking at things of like pouches, jars, cereals. But the World Health Organization says that the first thousand days of life, which begins at conception, is critically important to long-term health and wellness. And it's the window of opportunity for optimum brain and immune system development. So it's one where you look at it's like, okay, if we want to talk about quote babies, and then we talk, want to talk about baby food, then what we need to be talking about is what exactly we're peddling to pregnant women, infants, children, and lactating mothers. That is encompassing of babies and food because all of that is it's one where it's like right now we are narrowly focused in terms of even that federal definition we are looking at pouches and jars where it's like that is 25 percent of those critical first thousand days that period of time from about four months to a year six months to a year you know when munchkins are first starting to be introduced to food but it's like wait a second what about what's in the prenatal vitamins that are provided that are that mothers are taking every day in, in order to prevent from neural tube defects? What's actually in different types of infant formulas with moms that are relying on things like lactation cookies and things like that to make sure to optimize their milk supply? All of those things are baby foods, but it's one in the traditional sense from the current federal regulatory definition sense, they're not thought of as such. So I think from my perspective, that whole fundamental narrative needs to shift as well. And it needs an honest conversation of what it means to be a baby food. The Clean Label Project is changing the definition of food and consumer safety through the use of data, science, and transparency. The nonprofit organization awards brands that place an emphasis on purity and surpass the minimum regulations required by the FDA, and encourages them to be part of the solution to address the growing consumer concern of industrial and environmental contaminants and toxins in both food and consumer products. We've got a lot of, you know, America's top-selling baby brands that are now proactively and voluntarily testing and screening their products for things like heavy metals. And what's great about it is it's it's one where we have both the products you're going to find in natural product stores and things like that, your local co-ops. We also have products that are now on the WIC approved list. So it's one where good, healthy, nutritious, low in heavy metals, these are things that are absolutely available to all demographics, which is which is really important. So check out cleanableproject.org for for information. The other thing is of course, work with your pediatrician, you know, all of our kiddos have unique you know dietary needs and so you're going to want to make sure that you support that but the other thing is it's like there's always going to be products that your family loves that are, are not going to be clean able project certified serve as you know so often parents especially moms are serving as the chief operating officers of their household making that key determination of what's going to end up in the grocery store cart what's going to end up in the pantry and what's going to be you know sitting on the on that on the high chair so along those lines if there are brands that are not currently certified social media is such an amazing forum to ask questions and demand answers. Talk to those brands that make the products that your family loves and be like, hey, listen, I'm really concerned because I'm hearing all of this stuff related to heavy metals. Tell me what you're doing. You know, sometimes my, my son will get on these kicks where he only likes eating one thing. Um, where possible, diversify in order to make sure that your kid is, you know, getting all the food they need to kind of grow and thrive, but also mitigating, minimizing any of those, you know, potential contaminants.
Jackie Bowen, Executive Director of the Clean Label Project, on the web at cleanlabelproject.org. Check out their work on safe baby foods, including their Baby Coalition of Safe Brands. Again, that's cleanlabelproject.org. That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street News. Thanks to our guest, Jackie Bowen, our news editor, Ellen Weiniger, our engineer, Josh Lyman, associate producer, Toby Ziegler, our social media director, Donna Moss, and our marketing director, Sam Seaborn. I'm Doug Wood. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street News. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.